Frank White is a free man. How come you never came to see me? Who wanted to see you in a cage, man? He served his time. What can we expect from the reformed Frank White? I want to be mayor. He paid his debt. Go someplace where you can stay out of trouble. But some things don't change. From here on, nothing goes down unless I'm involved. No blackjack, no dope deals, no nothing. You're waiting years for this. I know what you're up to, White. Forget it. I'm gonna make you and your friends disappear long before that. Are you arresting me? Frank's Park Avenue attorney can get him out in 10 minutes. 10 minutes later! podcast where Chris Chafin and uh, me, Ricky Camilleri, discuss a movie that came out 30 years ago this week. Uh, we are extremely lucky this week uh, to have our second ever guest in the history of 30 years later, uh, <laughs> which is not 30 years long. It's actually only about eight weeks long, but <laughs> second ever guest of 30 years later, uh, Mr. Jason Bailey, uh, an incredible critic, a wonderful writer, author of a number of books. Um, and author of a recent great piece in the New York Times about cops and gangsters in movies of 1990 ties perfectly into this, and the co-host, co-creator of the podcast Fun City Cinema. Jason, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, you guys. This is uh, I'm, I'm excited to have another opportunity to, to talk about uh, King of New York, man. And um, Jason, you're the do some little a little business first your oh, podcast sure. fun city cinema is um kind of a promotional work i mean it is it exists 100 percent in its own in its own place but it was it began initially as a piece as a companion piece to a book that you're writing correct or that you already oh, wow. wrote already published <laughs> that i that i completed that won't be out until fall of next year um <laughs> But that I handed in two weeks into, or I'm sorry, two days into quarantine. Um, And which, you know, usually when you hand in a manuscript on, you know, the book you've been working on for three years, uh, it's a moment of huge celebration and rejoicing (laughs) and going out and having some drinks. And, you know, and it was just like, well, I guess I'm done with this. And um, (laughs) Jason, if I may say, it's a huge tactical miscalculation to not keep that to work on the entire quarantine. Like, you know, (laughs) it really was. Um, you know, well, I, and frankly, that's part of why there's a podcast of it now. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that kind of uh, idle hands thinking, um, you know, and we knew that the book was going to it was going to take a while to come out. It was originally supposed to come out in spring of next year. Um, and, you know, it's sort of a it's there's a fairly heavy amount of illustration. We knew there'd be some layout work that it would take some time to put together. But like almost immediately, you know, all of the. The, the, the printing houses got backed up and, you know, we pushed it back to fall of next year, which I was fine with because, you know, my key promotional strategy was I'll go around the country to rep houses and I'll host screenings of New York movies and we'll sign <laughs> books. And, you know, so it's like, well, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So fine. Put it out whenever you want. Um but yes, I had thought about the podcast initially just a straight promotion. Just let's do a, you know, like a limited series right before the book comes out. But uh, as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me, you know, the, the, the book is the, the subtitle is New York and the movies that made it, which sort of tells you what it is. It's, it's kind of a, a, a simultaneous history of New York City and New York City movie making and the points at which those histories intersect and what all of the great New York movies are telling us about what New York City was at that specific moment at which they were made. 
So it covers a lot, you know, it's, it's a hundred year uh, history. It's told in 10 chapters. Each chapter covers a decade focusing on sort of the quintessential New York movie of that decade, obviously with a lot of, you know, other ones thrown in. But in the process of, of researching all of that history and all of that film, there were a lot of stories that I just didn't have space for or didn't have time to tell in any kind of depth. And so as I was thinking more and more about the podcast, I realized that was what it could be, that it could be, you know, instead of just sort of a, a promo shtick, it could be, a, you know, a nonfiction narrative storytelling podcast where we could draw upon interviews I conducted from the book and, and people I had wanted to talk to for the book, archival audio, you know, and sort of help tell more of these stories and make these connections. And so that's kind of what we're doing. I have to say it's very well produced and far more seemingly far more time consuming than this podcast Chris and I put together <laughs> weekly. I mean that's all thanks to my co-host and my producer Mike Hall who's a guy I've known since, literally since I'm 17 years old. Like we went to school together in Wichita, Kansas. He lived here with me in New York for a long time. He lives out in Portland now, but you know, that was another reason I wanted to do it was he's he was getting into podcast producing and you know you know what it is, as, as I'm sure you can attest, sometimes you do a project with your friend just to have like an excuse to talk and hang out with your friend. So it's kind of become that as well. But that's all, you know, I, I write the script and, you know, and I do the research, but he is the one who who puts it together and who does all the editing and makes it sound as, as great as it does, which is something I feel comfortable saying because somebody else is doing it. I love um, I love the most recent I love both episodes that you've put out, but specifically the most recent episode starring the NYPD and its discussion of um, you know the French Connection, and I really think it's discussion of uh, sort of cowboy cops and yeah. the cops that sort of feel like they have to break the rules ties in perfectly to King of New York and the cops in that movie. Uh, for a little brief context for the listeners of this if you haven't watched king of new york before listening to this stop listening to this what have you done with your life go watch king of new york it's a fucking classic masterpiece it's free on amazon I prime it. i mean so you've got no excuse not to i finished re-watching it about 40 minutes ago and i re-watching it for like the probably thousandth time in my life and yeah. it still holds up I, I want to say better than almost any crime movie of that period. There's something so unique and specific about its mixture of exploitation and smart writing and artistic direction that is, I think, barely seen in, in movies of that time and, and, and even after. But Jason, you mentioned King of New York briefly in your New York Times piece. I assumed it was less of a mention because it's not as famous as Goodfellas, nor is it as famous as The Godfather 3. I'm wondering if there's anything that you would have wanted to say more about about the film in that in that piece that you, you maybe didn't get the chance to say. Sure. Well, I mean, I think what's what's what I think is most interesting about it, because the piece um, it, just if uh, to to set it up a little bit is about this, the sort of the gangster movie class of the fall of 1990, which was this incredible period where between September of, of that year and December, you had Goodfellas, King of New York, State of Grace, Miller's Crossing, and Godfather three, like all in that four month stretch. In addition to a couple of great gangster comedies, the summer previously you had the freshman and my blue heaven. And then also the British gangster movie, the craze came out in that same fall. So it was this really fertile period for, uh, for crime movies. And the sort of thesis of the piece was that everyone was, you know, waiting for Godfather three. That was the most hyped and most anticipated picture of the bunch. And it ended up being the one that sort of made the, the least of an impression that has left the, the, the smallest sort of cultural footprint. Um, 
because it was a, a third Godfather movie and it was very much in the sort of classical style of of those movies, which was sort of revolutionary in the 1970s. But the films that that really moved the needle in terms of crime movies and American cinema in general uh, in that bunch were these films that were a little more contemporary and fast paced and uh, over the top. Um, and I, I found sort of different ways that each of them sort of pointed towards where movies were going. And I think the, the what's most interesting about King of New York in that context is the degree to which it's an urban gangster movie, if I may use the sort of, yeah. you know, stodgy white guy way to say it, but that it was a film that was, you know, about that, that really mixed up the, the racial dynamics of the gangster movie and had these sort of charged racial politics. And that, you know, this was a kind this was a genre that, you know, with, with the occasional exception you know, the, the, the Black Caesars and Hell Up and Harlem's of the 70s was pretty well segregated that, you know, black crime movies and white crime movies didn't intermingle all that much. And if they did, it was sort of in very stereotypical villainous kind of terms. And that what's really interesting about this film is that it has this white antihero who has a black crew and white racist rivals and then this interracial group of detectives who are trying to take him down. Um, which is very much all of a piece with how Abel Ferrara thought about and saw the world and put it onto film, but was really uh, striking and unusual in as much as it was sort of applying these. I mean, in a lot of ways, King of New York is a very traditional 1930s Warner Brothers Cagney style gangster movie, um, but that it made space within that rubric for. A, a hip hop aesthetic, if you will. Well, what are you? So this is in your article as well. Sorry to jump in, but like no, you're okay. talking about the way that King of New York is both very forward looking, very forward looking to the rest of the '90s and forever since, with this kind of energy it has that like The Godfather Three doesn't have, but also that it kind of it, it's the framework of a 1930s gangster movie. And I, I read that in your piece, and I thought that was so interesting because that was something that honestly hadn't like really occurred to me watching the film. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like how you think it fits in that that box. Sure. Well, I mean, just that so many of those movies, uh, you know, and again, like your little Caesars, your white heats, your Scarface, the original Scarface, um, are these sort of like rise to the top stories um, where you see this, you know, this this charismatic criminal leader sort of come to fruition and, and sort of take over the, the, the underworld of whatever city it's set in. But then, you know, because of the the, the demands of the Hayes Code, even even though some of those were sort of when that wasn't quite being strictly enforced, that that character always had to pay for his sins. He always had to, you know, he always had to fall spectacularly in the, you know, in the closing minutes so that everyone knew that crime is actually bad. Um, and so that's those sort of broad strokes are followed. You know, we, we he comes out of prison and he sort of, you know, takes over the city again and rules the the roost for a while but then you know must eventually uh pay for his sins um what's what's sort of contemporary about that in this set and and oh and i'll i'll pause to note that you then see that same framework duplicated by a lot of the the black uh fronted and directed gangster movies of the 90s that followed most strikingly in new jack city the following year which starred King of New York co-star Wesley Snipes. So like King, New Jack City is very much in the scenes with the Snipes character 
in that same sort of 30s gangster movie mold. You know, I'm not saying that like Mario Van Peebles went and saw um, King of New York and said, well, this is how we're going to do New Jack City. But clearly there was something in the air at that moment that like this was this was an idea that could be sort of re uh, compart that this was an idea that could be sort of repurposed um, mm-hmm. into uh, the kind of the hip hop gangster. Movie well, so this is something like Ricky, you advised me to listen to this great episode of the rewatchables Bill Simmons podcast that has Quentin Tarantino talking about King of New York, which is great. Quentin loves King of New York. It's really interesting to listen to him, but this is like in the episode, Quentin Tarantino is convinced that new Jack city and King of New York were out in the same time, which like, I don't think is possible, but like, that's how he remembers it. And he refuses to be corrected on that point. He keeps, he's like, all right, well, it came out like right after, then like it must have been like two weeks later and they're just like eh, okay a whatever very good Clinton impression by the way oh, thank you very much yeah <laughs> i didn't i put zero work into it which is how i was <laughs> but actually one of the things quentin says on the show that i wanted to get your take on is he claims that in this movie lawrence fishburne's character jimmy jump is the first ever hip hop gangster in a movie is and i was like that's so cool and then i was like can that possibly be true and i'm wondering do you know anything about this I can't, I don't think that's true. Just solely based, like, Run DMC's Tougher Than Leather had been out, like, was out a few years before this. Um, and I and that's actually one of the things that I love about the introduction of him and Steve Buscemi in that, that first scene oh. that they're both in, is that they're both wearing, like, straight up Run DMC yes. uh, <laughs> outfits, like, completely. Like bucket hats, leather Adidas jackets, yeah. and, like, yeah. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Very, huge very, gold ropes. Huge gold ropes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Is there anything more compelling than Lawrence Fishburne in that opening scene fucking with uh, Emilio Zapata and being kind of like, where's my soda? And yeah. bobbing back and forth. It's, oh my God. Yeah. It's, I had it on in the background. I was like giggling hysterically to myself I, at his performance in that scene. That's a thing that I think is is one of the reasons that I value his performance in this movie so much is that he's become such a, I don't want to say like elder statesman, but he's just, he has become one of the actors that you sort of go to for gravitas. Mm -hmm. And as a result, and I think this is probably the matrix effect. Right. I would say the, I would say the boys in the hood effect. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. But even that's in a true. movie like John Wick, he's there as like a crazy, insane character in this insane universe, but to have gravitas also. Yes, you know? like, exactly. You know, he he always is, is someone of sort of establishment and wisdom yeah. and doesn't really play the kind of, of menace uh, that he's doing here. And he's like or, a punk, you know, he's like a young kid. Yeah. He's like a shithead kind of, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. And I think that's a, you know, and and I think, and maybe the, the, the answer to that is that, you know, like whatever, four years later, he played Ike Turner and he didn't have to play a, like a menacing villain ever again. We just sort of <laughs> took that for granted. But uh, it, it's, a, it's a really electrifying performance and it has that 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 real alchemy that that a young actor who is ready to like blow you off the screen can have like you know he had not done all that much at this time his only really like noteworthy role yet uh, to date had been the lead in school days um and he and he really comes in like literally guns a blazing in this movie <laughs> well the story the the story by him, behind him playing jimmy jump is that he was supposed to play wesley snipes's part mm. and Jimmy Russo was supposed to play Jimmy Jump and Jimmy Jimmy Russo refused to do the movie because he hated David Caruso after they did China Girl together (laughs) 
and the story um, supposedly the story, yeah oh not to interrupt you please you you do it ricky oh yeah the story that tarantino tells on the podcast not to like repeat what i just heard on another podcast but that <laughs> he told Abel. he told Abel. there's a scene in the movie where david crusoe spits in jimmy jump's face and jimmy russo was like i'm not gonna let that irish prick spit in my face fuck that wow, <laughs> wow. um but then so then the Lawrence Fishburne begged Abel to to do Jimmy Jump and he showed up and he basically was wearing the outfit that Jimmy Jump was in and the audition was over and Abel was like you got the part immediately without wow. even reading a word and then Caruso begged for Wesley Snipes to get the part because Caruso was close friends with Wesley Snipes apparently at the time wow. and they were like doing a pilot that's what's together so yeah yeah, I mean, that's what's so interesting about that racial dynamic within the movie, because a huge part of the movie is the dynamic between Snipes and Fishburne, where Fishburne is consistently referring to Snipes as black when right. like Snipes is hunting him under the bridge. He's 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 taunting him by being like, I got a piece of chicken for you. And then Fishburne steps out and it's like, where's my chicken black and shoots him. It's like very yeah. provocative. But that stuff definitely wasn't in the script prior to this casting. I mean, what a brilliant rewrite on the part of the filmmakers to be like okay well now we can do this with the dynamic yeah. and we can yeah. be kind of provocative about this relationship yeah and really one of the first films i think that we saw that was sort of exploring that duality of the black cop and sort of the i mean you can go back to things like across 110th street and stuff like that but you know it's such a it's such a huge moment in boys in the hood a year later you know when when they're dealing with that really insidious black cop character and the sort of psychology of that and that we're starting to get into that in here just as sort of it's and it's very it's almost purely subtextual it's sort of an offhand footnotey kind of thing but it's really fascinating oh yeah i would argue that it, i mean for for from for my opinion it, it's it's more it's more interesting and it leads to greater second repeat viewings because mm. it's all subtextual it's yeah. less on like wesley snipes doesn't walk out and have a monologue about being right. a black cop and what that means he just has like racially tinged insults towards another right. another black guy who fires them back at him and then he also has all these white cops who are supposed to be his friends who are in the wedding scene making yeah. jokes about him being the only black guy there. yeah that's a great yeah. scene yeah 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 and he has a white yeah, wife I mean, also is the other thing about it. It's all yeah, very yeah. like, I mean, yeah, they were saying on the rewatchables, it's like the mirror of Frank, right? Like Frank is the only white person in this black crew. And then Wesley Snipes is the yeah. only black person in this white crew of cops. And it is, it, it's, it's so interesting because the movie race is like a big part of the movie in a certain way, but it, and it deals with it in a kind of very 1990 way where it's right on the knife edge between being very progressive and interesting and very stereotypical and offensive. I mean, right. I think it, it sits right. right in the middle of that, you know, like even yeah. Larry Fishburne's character, which I love everything he's doing. And it's a, such a compelling performance. But the first time I saw the movie, I was like, I don't know. So he's like a punk. He's like, it seemed very like, Oh, so he's playing like the thug from the movie, you know, <laughs> right. and it's so much more nuanced than that, but it, it, it is, it takes a little bit more attention to see through that in the film. I feel like, yeah. I don't leave no witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that, I think a real key scene sort of to consider when you're talking about that dynamic is that that great scene on the subway um, oh. with, mm, right. you know, yeah, we're, we're walking and uh, and his his lady are, uh, uh, you know, his lawyer. It's his lawyer yeah. that he's 
copying a feel with on the subway. So this scene is, just to set this up a little bit, this is so bizarre to me. So I didn't see this movie for the first time until a couple of years ago. And like, he's having this very fancy dinner with a very famous real columnist and some other underworld figures and his lawyer, right? And, and they're having this, you know, repartee and... Eventually, he says to his lawyer, and I'm not going to do a Christopher Walken impression, but he says, like, I want to take you to the subway. And everyone laughs. And then it cuts to them, like, making out on the subway with her shirt off. And I was like, was this a, was this a euphemism at the time? Like, is this, was this something I was supposed to understand was coming as the audience? Or, like, is this as completely insane as it feels right now? But, like, this right. is the beginning of this scene you guys are talking about. Right. And then he, you know, he... Uh, they are approached by a, a group of, of youths of black youths on the subway uh, who are, who are clearly uh, looking for looking to mug him. And like, you got to, you know, this is coming out of the eighties on the New York subway. And, you know, we've had Bernie Getz and we've had many, many subway scenes in, in movies. And then what's really interesting is that the, the scene sort of turns on its head because in, you know, Christopher Walken uh, informs them that they should come to the Plaza hotel and, and, and work for him. Uh, because he's he's looking for enterprising young men like themselves. Um, and I think it's a really interesting scene, both, you know, in sort of going in an unexpected direction, but also almost sort of subtextually. Like I said, th- this movie to me is very much about sort of turning the gangster movie over to uh, to African-American actors and filmmakers. And that's sort of a, a way to read that scene as, as kind of what Abel Ferrara was doing here. Right. I mean, if the, if, if, if the star of this movie is like Charles Bronson, for example, I mean, or even Bruce Willis, it's like he's going to blow those guys away to yeah. prove what a badass he is. And yeah. for it to go to it, for it to zag like that, like you're saying, I mean, yeah, I also agree. I thought that was such, such an interesting choice. And it really establishes the kind of movie you're in for, you know. Right. Would you also say that it's one of the first movies uh, movies or, you know, and TV afterwards had had a specific series that did it, but approached the drug war and drugs as a form of industry that was the only accessible money-making tools for a specific community. And again, it's subtextual because on the surface, the movie is an exploitation movie about a gangster right. and cops that are after him. But in my, in my mind, as far as I can think, it's the first real movie to kind of explore that this was the only business opportunities and that in this world, in this hyper-capitalist world, he is just a businessman. Absolutely. And I think it's much more sort of explicitly spelled out in New Jack City, but a lot of those same ideas are present there. And also, in again, that's sort of throwing back again to the to the to the old school Warner Brothers kind of gangster movie where it's you know like these guys are coming out of the slums and this is their only way to make to make a to make a buck in this world and and you know and some of the sort of like social issues that end up working their way in you know where he's like handing out money you know or uh, Jimmy Jump is like handing out money to, to neighborhood kids and he's trying to find ways to like help out the neighborhood and it's these social issues with the the children's hospital and all of this stuff which is which is actually weirdly sort of very steeped in real history of of new york in the 80s when you had you know these social services getting cut fiscal cuts privileged districts that are getting all the funding like that's all very much part of the fabric of the city in that era and it's also like like we were saying before it's a throwback to that's like 
it's a throwback to the 30s. It's like Al Capone was doing stuff like yeah. that, right? You know, it's, absolutely. Yeah. The scene with the uh, in the in the fried chicken restaurant when he gives the little kids the quarters and like acts like he's going to slap the uh, the guy working the cash register is just. I mean, this scene for scene, there are so many classic moments in this yes. film, but that is a wonderful, wonderful moment where he's like, "Fuck is wrong with you?" And he yeah. goes over here. Let the kids play as many video games as they want. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to talk. I want to talk uh, specifically, of course, about Cowboy Cops and how, after listening to your podcast and then watching the movie, it really felt like this movie turned, uh, subverted the Cowboy Cop narrative, turned it on its head, like we're talking it did with the gangsters and with the and and and, and with the drug war. But specifically, whereas Cowboy Cops in movies who break the rules get results. Right. These ones just get everyone killed. Yeah. And they get themselves yeah. murdered. They're fucking idiots. Yes. Yeah, they do a real they they do they do this thing really really poorly and end up uh no, no, no one comes out the better for the thing. No, that was a, that's a really interesting point and frankly a connection that I that I wish I had made. Um I think it's too late to go back and throw that in. But um yeah, this I you know this this sort of uh, the idea that you know that that they're they're going to take the law into their own hands. And under most circumstances, that's the story of the police triumph. And instead in this one, it's the story of the, of the police getting themselves and others killed. It's it's Um, almost like a Coen brothers movie where like, because the the cops that do it, they're not even involved in any of the stuff Frank has going on. They're just mad about something that's kind of unrelated. And so they do something everyone is telling them not to do. And it causes the disaster Mm -hmm. that ruins everyone's lives and gets everyone killed. It's so interesting. Right. And it's not like you said, Ricky, it's not like normally what the cops are doing in a movie. Well, they've been sold a lie, right? They've been sold this morality that they're supposed to uphold, but the system itself and the world doesn't actually operate that way. So their like their insistence on upholding it by any means necessary is could can only lead to to their downfall. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the the system is the character of like Roy Bishop, right? Like the older detective, like he's the one like doing things by the rules and he's the honorable one. And I feel like there's some kind of the film is giving us some kind of a message that him and Frank kill each other. And, you know, it's like Frank shoots first and he shoots later. And I, I'm still trying to puzzle out exactly what that's, what kind of message that is conveying. I think it's the same exact message as the other cops, because eventually he tries to do what the other cops did. He tries to take it into, yeah, he tries to arrest him, but he tries to take uh, the matter into his own hands. We don't know if he has any evidence. But against Frank, Frank started it, we though. Frank any... came oh, to his true. apartment like out of nowhere. Like also, Frank shouldn't have done that because really, that that cop had nothing to do with David Caruso's whole crew, and in fact, he had told them not to do it. So again, it's like a, it's a tragedy. You know, it's a misunderstanding. Yeah. Everything is a mistake, basically. Yeah. <laughs> not to yeah. derail the and conversation we, or anything. I just No, 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 that's true. And I but I think one of the things is also important to note about the ending if if that's if that's sort of what we want to talk about for a minute <laughs> is that you know there there are I think the the way that the film treats Frank as an anti-hero is really fascinating. I think it 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 plays really smart with when with who we're going to see him buck and who we're going to see him kill. And like, you know, that that it really is in many ways a situation where he almost always is killing or upsetting bad people, you know, like when he goes in, you know, marches into that card table, 
and kills all those and kills that gangster. Like, first of all, I think I, you know, I mentioned this in the piece the the times piece that that's, that I think is a, is a, another sort of really telling subtextual scene because that is the Godfather style gangster. Like that is the traditional movie gangster who, uh, but you know, he's, and, and, and who this film treats as these sort of obstacles and relics of the old school and who are going to get plowed over immediately. But, the, the casual racism of these guys is very much in the foreground of it's about all we know about this old gangster is that he's racist and that he uses racist epithets. So when Frank kills him, we're, we're kind of fine with it, you know, um, and all throughout we're seeing, you know, the good things he's trying to do with the community and children's hospital, whatever, like the moment at which it becomes OK for Frank to die at the end of the movie, in my opinion, is when he holds a gun to a random woman on the train. Like, that's the moment where it's like, oh, no, you've committed like a New York City foul now. You've like you're bringing like an innocent bystander into this thing. Just some poor black woman on the train. Like, no, never. N- you're done, Frank White. We're done with you. now. You can't you know? disrupt thought, your regular commute. I mean, that's just no! like beyond. <laughs> Absolutely not. But now he does do it in this kind of episode. humanistic way where he's like, look, I I don't want to hurt you, but I will absolutely <laughs> blow you away. <laughs> You're like, well, okay, seems fair. That seems fair. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, David Caruso's monologue in the bar where he really goes rogue, goes cowboy cop, you know, and he Whoa. has that moment where he says, uh, you know what my fucking... You won't let me do my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so I think it's like iconic Caruso, and I don't know if he's ever really been better than that moment. His entire career has been chasing that moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that is that's the ethos, sort of that as you mentioned that we're talking about in the uh, in the episode, which is that so many of the great sort of New York cop movies and New York cop stories are all positioned in this post Miranda moment. Where, oh, you know, suddenly we have to appease the the liberal lawyers and the internal affairs division and they're just getting in our way and they won't let us do our job. Um, and so for him to, to put it that explicitly is, is, is very on point. Has there ever been a movie, and uh, I po- I take this question to you, Jason, because I'm assu- I, uh, I'm assuming that you know far more about this than me, and I think mm-hmm. it's a safe assumption. Uh, do you think that there has been a movie where it's been so clearly cops and robbers but you're more on like clearly the movie is on the side of christopher walken right like the movie's sympathies at the very least tonally are on the side of christopher walken's has that ever really been the case i mean i know a week before you have goodfellas but you also don't have cops and goodfellas you really just have the gangsters and in this you have cops and and robbers but the movie really sides with the robbers. It really does. No, that's a that's a, an excellent point. It, no, that's it's it's definitely squarely on the side of them, uh, on on the side of of Frank White in terms of how he is, how he's introduced, how he's framed throughout the movie, the kind of charisma. Like you don't you don't put Christopher Walken in this role unless you want him to just ooze with charisma. <laughs> Um, and, and I think he does that throughout. No, I think that's, I think that's an excellent point. And it does, you know, it, it helps to have guys like Caruso and Snipes playing those cops, but I don't think there's a moment's doubt of, of who we're pulling for even before they go rogue. But isn't that like the appeal of the gangster movie in general though, is like, we're getting to see these people transgress, like whether like, like going all the way back to public enemy, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and everything in between. And it's exactly what you said at the, towards the beginning of the show, Jason, which is like, we we get to watch them transgress and we get to watch them get everything they ever wanted. But then 
as a message to us, the audience, they have to get their comeuppance at the end, which is a message to us not to actually go out and do the stuff that they're doing, even though it seems like it works out fine for them, more or less, you know? Right. <laughs> yes yeah. and no, though, right? Because in this movie specifically, the, the, the cops transgress almost just as much as the criminals do, and the cops pay the price for it yeah, a, a, as well, which is not something, like even if you go back to Public Enemy, it's like, yes, we're watching, we're, we're, we're sort of getting off on watching these, these, these bad guys transgress, and it's a lot of fun, but the cops either play a much smaller role, or the role that they play is simply looking for the, the, the bad guys. Right. As opposed to right. act like actively being the villains, right? Like, which yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good totally. point. Yeah, I agree. Um. Jason, when you were starting, uh, starring the NYPD, did you know initially that you were going to be thinking about the role of cowboy cops in movies? Or was that something that you ended up, a pattern that you ended up sort of coming across as you started rewatching uh, a lot of those movies? No, I knew that that was what the subject of that one was going to be. Like, we, you know, we, I, initially these first couple episodes, particularly, we, we really wanted to sort of connect what we see in some of these films with what's happening right now. And I, I think I feel very strongly that, you know, that when you talk about these movies, you're talking about the beginning of propaganda. And we've talked a lot in the culture right now about the role that propaganda plays in sort of the, the, the benefit of the doubt that is typically extended to police. Um, and the, 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 this is a moment to sort of start questioning why we give them that benefit of the doubt. Um, do you think do you think this movie struggled upon release? I mean, people apparently walked out, walked out of it at the New York Film Festival. If you look up its Rotten Tomatoes, it doesn't have very good reviews. Do you think it struggled because it wasn't propaganda, nor was it simply uh, just transgressive, you know, exploitation for for the gangsters? It lies somewhere in the middle, and I think sometimes people have a hard time, you know, understanding who they should root for. I think that's true. And I mean, I think also you just have to take into account that there, you know, we, Abel Ferrara has, I think, sort of rightly finally started to, to, to get the proper consideration and respect as, as a genuine artist, as a cinematic artist, which is what I think he is. But at the moment, you know, at the time in 1990, he was this, he was an exploitation filmmaker. Like he, you know, the, the, the reputable critics didn't really give his work uh, serious consideration. Um, and to the, to their detriment, I think like one of the things that was really striking to me when I was working on the book was the degree to which his eighties output seemed to really capture the, 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 the feel of New York city in the 1980s in a way that not that, you know, more, you know, sort of vaunted uh, colleagues of the year, even, you know, your Scorsese's, your Lumet's, your, your Woody Allen's that sort of, you know, the big three of, of New York movie makers at the time didn't, you know, when you're looking at, Driller Killer, you know, um, uh, Miss For- Miss Forty Five, um, uh, Fear City. There's there was a real sort of palpable grime and sleaze to those movies that was really accurate to what the the city was at that time. But it also made them very sleazy movies. <laughs> and I think that that sort of film uh, that 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 sort of you had to sort of scrape off all of his work at the time was still something that a lot of critics hadn't figured out quite how to deal with. Well, I'd love to talk about this like as a film, like the movie as a film for a little bit as a piece of cinema. And I think it's mm. oh, so much of what you're saying is is so 
dead on, right? But it is this movie where, like, we're saying it's an exploitation picture, but it's also like a piece of art, you know? And, and one of the things that struck me about the film is how much space it gives itself, how much before and after the action mm. is, is inserted in the movie for a sub two hour, you know, exploitation crime opera. Like, you know, there's in the middle of a car chase, they just like cut to a bridge with the rain falling for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't feel out of place. It feels like it's adding right. something to the movie. Lots of shots of like flickering neon signs. And, you know, there's a sequence that I wrote down in my notes that was like, so it's immediately after this wedding scene that we've been talking about. And they cut to just like the subway going across, okay? Just like scene setting. Then you cut to the corner of this older detective, the, you know, good system detective's room, slowly pan over to him and he's just kind of smoking and frowning and hitting the keys on his computer. And then it's another scene. Like that's just, yeah. it's just such a, it's such a bizarre choice for an exploitation film. And and I found it so enrapturing the way that it's it's slow. It takes its time. I mean, it's almost like Leone the way it'll set up somebody who gets murdered and you never see again. Yeah. You know, it gives them so much do you space. Know, uh, do you, do you want to know a wonderful detail about that uh, scene where Victor Argo is typing into his computer and he's looking at police files? Always uh, there. There are multiple misspellings <laughs> like, on the computer screen. Like it's so funny. Like at first you're like, oh, that's a weird mistake. And then you're kind of like, no, there's probably a lot of misspellings in police files. Yeah. And that's like a, yeah. a very right on detail that's yeah. put so in there. Funny. But like no, why I, like why is that also, scene in the movie? Do you know what I mean? Like it it's just it's so atmospheric and artistic, like, you know. It's like illustrating that he is a, a by the book cop who does his leg work and does and works from home. It's just and it's, it's, not it's just, just like so a, unusual. I feel to see that kind of thing in any kind of a film. Like a, I feel like a modern big budget studio movie that was like one of the town or whatever. Like they wouldn't put a scene like that in just completely no. out of nowhere. You know. Well, no, I'll I, I'll add to that. Sorry, Jason. I don't. I'll no, just very fast. I'll add to that in terms of like things that the movie adds. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but like when after the the reunion scene with Lawrence Fishburne and Christopher Walken, which I mean, no movie would really know how to film a scene like that. But mm-hmm. when that scene ends, Walken is putting on Emil Zappa's uh, glove and uh, or T- King Tito's glove, maybe. And it's just like the, it almost feels like an outtake that was inserted into the movie, right? Like the scene is over and we're just watching Walken put this glove on and kind of improvise a moment where he's like, as his um, King Tito's, if I had this glove, I'd, I'd, wrap, I'd wrap it around his neck. And he doesn't even, it feels like he's like, Perform- it feels like he's performing for the crew yes, like yeah. someone left the camera running and he didn't know what to do. But it also ends up illustrating this sort of like, beautiful moment where he's ecstatic about meeting his seeing his friends again and it's just sort of like talking shit and over the moon and mumbling to himself like it ends up being this like very poignant moment but so clearly like an outtake in the scene yeah well no i mean i think you're right and i this this had never really occurred to me before but when you think of this movie within the arc of the ferrara career and all of the movies that i'm talking about all of his a's output or you're right are like 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 undoubtedly exploitation cinema all of these are just you know are are Times square 42nd street movies and this movie really when you look back on the on the evolution of the career this is the hinge where he's becoming an art filmmaker where he's becoming less of an exploitation filmmaker than an independent filmmaker and it's a transition that is still happening in bad lieutenant which has exploitation elements but is more of an art film than this one is and then by the time you start getting into stuff later in the decade you know like the funeral and 
and New Rose Hotel. Like he's firm, like he's an art filmmaker by then. He's an, he's he's one of one of those guys. And so I think those are the little moments where you're seeing him just start to play with like what he can get away with. Um, What's so? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Jason. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, in regards to his 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 period as like a straight up exploitation filmmaker in the '80s, there is still uh, a wit and intelligence. To oh, sure. A movie oh, totally. Like Miss Forty Five. That's something like a movie that I I, I love, but something like Maniac is missing, which sure. is a great New York grime film, Absolutely. but doesn't contain nearly as much of the of the I, I would say visual wit as well as you know writing. That, yeah. that miss that miss 45 carries no thank you because i don't i don't mean to like demean the exploitation film or the exploitation filmmaker because i love those movies and you're right he always had a little something extra a little extra bit of juice but i guess i'm more referring to like what what exact you know what what he felt he could get away with in these movies yeah yeah no, and king of new york still exists within that context right mm-hmm. i mean i think that's another another piece of it that alienated so many critics and audiences of that time sure. where it's like what 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 is the category of this movie? Am yeah. I watching a sleazy exploitation movie or am I watching a movie that takes the drug war seriously? Right. And what's so what's so wonderful about the movie to me and keeps keeps it worth repeat keeps it worth watching repeatedly is that it doesn't abide by either of those standards. It exists no. in both of them consistently and you can get so much more out of that as yeah. a viewer. Oh, it's very much a pastiche. I mean, and I think maybe the more the most helpful way to think about that is to think about it in terms of musical styles. Like if you had to pin a musical style on this film, well, some of it is <laughs> punk and some of it's hip hop and some of it's opera. Like yeah, and they yeah. all yeah, exist. Yeah. Within it's that like frame. Vivaldi meets Schooly D. It's Absolutely. So <laughs> Absolutely. And there are certain, and in fact, there are individual sequences where those influences are all crashing together. You know, that big, that, that private party turned bloodbath. Oh. Like, you know, that's, you know, oh the, God, the yeah. sort of the, 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 the hyperactive neon blues and the sort of booming bass. And it's just like, it's so hyper stylized, but it's beautiful also. And also like horrifying, you know? I I also love like the first I mean the first 30 minutes or so of the movie like from you know when we see Christopher Walken walk out of his jail cell to the Mm -hmm. end of that reunion scene that we're talking about it's just masterful everything in it is great super compelling and I mean I'm such a fan of that like Christopher Walken doing his weird dancing that we know now from this point in history is just that's just him naturally is that he likes doing that kind of stuff he does it so much and what's so great is the first time he's meeting the gang they have they pretend like they're mad at each other and then they laugh and they're hugging he does this dance and he makes these noises and the gang all does it along with him, which implies that he does this all the time. It's like the signature the of the gang, which I thought was so, it's just so joyful. Like, like you were saying, Ricky, he's so happy to be back. They're all so like happy to see each other. It's, it's really, and Christopher Walken, his, his performance is so Christopher Walken. It's quintessentially like 1990 standup comedian, Christopher Walken impression. Yes. Yeah, Christopher, Christopher Walken for me is perfect in two movies, and he's got other better movies or other movies that people love. But At Close Range and King of New York for me are the quintessential Christopher Walken, like yeah. almost like pornographically Christopher Walken <laughs> yeah. performances. Yeah, I'd go like, along with that. Yeah. Um, one little uh, like I don't not Easter egg, but little tidbit about that scene where he meets the um he meets larry fishburne again for the first time and he does the dance when he's doing all those pauses in between talking i think it's on the commentary or in some other interview 
someone says that oftentimes those pauses are Walken not remembering his lines because he doesn't really like to he doesn't really like to memorize his lines that much. And so often what you see in movies when specifically in that scene when there's these long pauses and he's looking around, he's literally about to call line. Wow. <laughs> That's wow. amazing. Like pretty great. You know, art gets made in all kinds of ways, Ricky. Yeah, I mean, it just shows to show you like, oh, well, I always talk about acting as like, you know, there's two things, right? There's like work and then there's also just like being fucking charismatic. Yes, which and is present. Like, and he's always present. Always, always, always. I want to ask, uh, you know, we we talk a lot about uh, uh, about how the movie uh, works in relation to 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 the podcast, but I'm curious, Jason, when the and Chris, I know you said you watched it for the first time two years ago, but Jason, where where were you? How old were you the first time you saw King of New York, and what was it like the first time you saw it? See, this is going to blow your mind a little bit. Like I, you know, I we we talked about initial reception, and one of the things that I that I tried to dip into a bit in the piece was that this was very much a film that was made by home video and I that you know it didn't do all that much business initially theatrically but a bit it got a good uh, home video release from live home video which was one of the big sort of labels for 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 indie films at the time and I was working in video stores when it was out and like saw it going out a lot it was like a big movie but for some reason then I still don't know why I never quite got around to seeing it Um, which is inexplicable because like I said, I was a Tarantino kid, you know, I loved him in Pulp Fiction. Like I knew that this was an important movie. I just had, had never made it to this one. I saw it for the first time about two years ago when, uh, Museum of Modern Art did their big Ferrara retrospective where they showed almost all of it. Were you, were you at that Q and A? I sure was. I, was I heard that I heard that Q and A was lit as fuck. Did a wait, tell us who wait, who was at the Q and A? Like Ferrara? Like what? Ferrara was interviewed by the Safdie brothers, who oh, are who are very you know who are obviously like if you've seen Good Time, if you've seen Uncut Gems, like obviously this is an important movie to them. Obviously, Ferrara is an important filmmaker to them. I think and Ferrara is in Daddy Longlegs. That's right. Yes, he is. Yeah. So, it, you know, so it, it, I expected this sort of like jovial, you know, uh, Q&A thing. And he just like, he could not have been more ho- sort of hostile to them and indifferent <laughs> to the fact that he was there. It was like, I mean, it was a very, like, Ferrara is one of these guys almost to an extent like Walken is where like he's, you know, he's sort of, but he's sort of playing a character by this point, like almost in a, in a Werner Herzog kind of way. Like we sort of just expect him to be sort of brusque and, and and impatient and a, a sort of curmudgeon you know a new york curmudgeon if you will um but it was a very you know they got some good stuff out of him but he was he he it was as if there was anywhere on the planet he would have rather been than at that q a so like i got to see the movie for the first time in that great on that wow. great screen at moma and then afterwards watch the poor safety brothers just do their best to like to to you know they're i mean this is this is about the most agreeable q a host you can could ask for like they love this guy they love this movie they love his movies and he was just yeah what the fuck who cares what kind of question is you know like it was very uh it, it was it was it was a uh, uh, it was a bit aggro yeah 
I want to get to your reaction to the movie in just a second, but I had a friend who was at that screening and he was actually with Paul Calderon uh, at the screening. Yes. Uh, You know, um, and uh, apparently at one point, Abel noticed Paul in the audience. I don't know if you remember this. And he said, is that fucking Paul Calderon? I got to fucking do this myself. Why don't you get the fuck up here too? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Oh, that, that was so great. So, what yeah. was your, you know, I, I, when I first saw the movie, I was like in college, so it's a different kind of sure. visceral response. I think you know, you're still developing your frontal lobe and uh, hormonal. <laughs> I mean, especially, uh, and, especially and, you, Ricky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so, what was it like for you as like a you know an adult man to 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 see this movie? I mean, I loved it. I I you know I I, I again the sort of the operatic nature of it really appealed to me. The theatricality of it really appeared to, appealed to me. I, I should throw in just a tiny plug that actually our the site that I edit, which is Crooked Marquee, we ran a, a terrific piece um, by a writer named uh, Anya Stanley to just today about the theatricality of, of King of New York and the sort of Shakespearean tragedy quality of it, which is wonderful. She's a terrific writer. Um, I, so I was struck by all of those qualities, but also the thing to sort of keep in mind is that I was like researching the book by this point. Like part of the reason I made a point to go to a lot of the Ferrara movies at that retro was because they were movies I needed to watch for the book. And one of the things that I, that really struck me within that framework, like viewing it through that prism uh, was that there are a handful of films that I feel like that are, that were released in 1990 but that were sort of the last gasp of 80s New York filmmaking. Like that these were movies that that almost could not have come out in 91 or 92 and been the same because this was, we were going, the 90s, especially the early 90s, were such a tremendous period of tumultuous change in New York City and the sort of sleaziness of, uh, griminess of 80s New York was disappearing. So, you know, I put it in a class with, so, you know, Q&A, which we've we've talked about with uh, Quick Change, with even the De Palma Bonfire of the Vanities as being the sort of like the, the sort of they came out in 1990, but they're sort of like the last 80s New York movies. And I think as that, it's like really valuable. It's a, it's a really sort of important piece of, of that era and also of Abel coming out of that era. Side note, Nolte's performance in Q&A is also one of my favorite performances uh, oh, in a movie. It's maybe my favorite Nolte performance. Yeah. Oh, and it's uh, it's like it, it is it is the, the same kind of pure uncut actor th- yes. that, that Walken is doing here. Like it's a, it's it's the most Nick Nolte performance you're ever going to see. I tell you, that. I mean, like, and, it's really and Nick his Nolte. Scene- his scene with Paul Calderon in that oh, movie yeah. in the boat is oh, yeah. is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, they're both really great in that scene. Um, I'll just, I, I saw the movie when I was in college, a friend of mine from New York, a very New York friend of mine showed <laughs> it to me and he was like, you know, you got to watch this movie. And I had maybe already seen bad Lieutenant and loved bad Lieutenant because mm-hmm. it was provocative and shocking and, sure. and, and, you know, Kind of macho, I think, and but mm-hmm. like in an artistic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly with King of New York. But I, the movie starts. He's getting out of jail. It's soft. It's quiet. You know the 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 images is the images of the streets from the limo. I I was into because I always loved New York blight. You know yeah. the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Uh, and then he's in the shower, and he looks down the fucking barrel of the lens. Yeah, why does that keep happening? Why does that keep happening? 
I, I remember seeing that when I watched the movie for the first time and was like, I am fucking in. I will yeah. love this movie forever. Yeah. yeah it's and gold. then the next, and then the next scene is Jimmy jump showing up and Christopher Walken dancing. And I was like, yeah. I will love this movie even more forever. Yeah. <laughs> and then that just kind of keeps happening as the movie progresses. Yeah. Chris, you said you saw it for the first time a couple years ago. What was your initial thought? Yeah, well, you know, uh, guys, not to be like the grid in the machine, but I mean, definitely when I first saw it a couple years ago, I was like, I couldn't believe what I was watching. Like, Ricky, you talk about this movie all the time, and I was very interested in seeing it. And so I watched it, and I was like, you know, all the women have their tits out, all the black guys have gold teeth and huge guns. Like, it's a movie where everybody's throwing cocaine at each other and everybody gets shot in the face. I'm like, you know, they say the N word like amazing. a thousand just, times. And like, you just, I don't know, I don't even know what movie you're talking about, but it sounds amazing. Chris. I can't <laughs> wait to watch that. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is the movie? Like, I don't know about this. Um, Re watching it for the show, I will say I actually liked it a lot more than I watched it when I liked it the first time. Time. I don't know I, something about it, it 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 kind of has this early 90s late 80s energy where it's it's very like crass in a certain way you know as much oh, as oh. it's operatic and beautiful and like it is classy in certain ways and 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 visually interesting but in another way it's very crass you know like and I think that is the exploitation stuff that we're talking about you know but yeah I mean if there's a woman in a scene like she's gonna have her tits out within 10 seconds of the first two women in the movie have their tits out, you know, it's, but they are also his bodyguards. <laughs> <laughs> Hire more women guards. Yeah. Right. I mean, Gaddafi did some things right is all I'm saying. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't um, know, I didn't know about it, but I, I really did enjoy it a lot more watching it again. <laughs> I did. Uh, Jason, do you have a, a, a favorite part of the movie? Uh, Christopher Walken dancing. Yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's so genuine, right? Yeah, yeah. I go, I go. Caruso in the bar. I've just loved his performance so much. It it rides that really fine line that Abel, I think, specifically in this movie and in like Dangerous Game, does really well, which mm -hmm. is like creating creating this space for a very macho actor to go way over the top and the movie to be with him while also kind of mocking him mm. at the same time. Does have that I make found, sense? Like, yes. Have I found the only other person in the world who likes Dangerous Game? Did this just happen? <laughs> uh, I, got, I, I, I got that motherfucking DVD, baby, and I watched that movie reg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good picture. Jimmy Russo screaming, you do anything not to suck a tailpipe! <laughs> is one of the great monologues in yeah. any movie ever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, and, and you know, that whole, that whole scene where they, they raid the club is amazing. But then when they're just like, they're in the car and it's like Caruso and Wesley Snipes and Wesley Snipes in so many scenes is like mumbling angrily through his mm -hmm. teeth. When he arrests, when he arrests Fishburne in the chicken place, he's going, motherfucker, I'm going to fuck motherfucker. Mm -hmm. And then when he's in the car chasing him, he's going this fuck you fuck motherfucker. Like, they're just in like it's they're clearly these super macho actors that I feel like behind the lens, Abel was like, look at these guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, let them do it. And there's even on the commentary on the commentary track for uh King of New York, which Ferrara recorded in two thousand two when I think he was still using, mm -hmm. he requested five thousand dollars for to record it. Oh my god. <laughs> but on the track, 
he talks about the scene on the queen the the chase scene on the queensboro bridge and how he spent days talking caruso out of doing the driving because caruso refused to refused to take part in scenes unless he could do the driving and ferraro like you know classically ferrara in the in the commentaries you can't let fucking caruso drive fucking kill everybody goddamn cowboy (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So the problem was not he would hurt himself; is that he would hurt everyone else. Hurt others. <laughs> yeah, he would hurt cool. everyone else. Yeah. Um, the movie I, was. Re- oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, just because you mentioned him, I think it is also worth mentioning. Like Wesley Snipes, an incredible like this burst of him sort of becoming a star in 90 to 91 is like maybe my favorite period of his career, because you got to look at like, he had like three months before this, he was in Mo better blues. He does this the following spring. He's in new Jack city. And then the summer after that, he's in jungle fever. Like that's an incredible run of work of really different characters and showing what he can do and it's just to me it's so depressing that he turned into just this sort of one note action guy that's like one of the reasons i was so delighted by his work in dolomite is because coming out of the gate he had such chops and such range and it really felt at the beginning like he could do anything and then into white men can't jump the following year like oh the fun guy can can do comedy too like it really felt like he could do just about anything and he was so exciting to watch in this period and it is such an interesting version of snipes where it's like he hasn't quite become that person he's going to become even in New Jack right. City, right? But like you're saying, Ricky, there's something like constrained about his performance. And and in a certain sense, he's almost like the good guy of the bad cops, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's got he's very young, he's very fresh faced, he's got like a his his haircut's very neat, you know. And I will say, uh, Jason, you, I'm a big fan of Star Trek, and like he w- almost got the role of Jordy LaForge in Star Trek The Next Generation, which had just started oh, wow. in 1989. So like wow. he is that person who like almost was one of the leads on Star Trek, but then he wow. became this like Wesley Snipes that we all know, you know. So you're seeing him in the middle of all that. It's it's very interesting. There's a great moment in with with Snipes in King of New York, and it's another one of those subtextual kind of moments where, which I just like, like Scorsese, I think Scorsese works this way as well, where he doesn't really present the racial conflict as the text. It's all mm-hmm. underneath, you know, it's, it's the guy saying that the black guys stole his truck and that is illustrative of, right. you know, <laughs> black fear across the country right. for decades upon decades. But in, in there's this in the wedding scene in the bar, which is, um, you know, a, a great bar in Williamsburg that I've been to a lot. Uh, Chris, I think we've actually been to that. Bar yeah, it's like my one of my favorite bars in New York. Yeah, it kind of sucks, but it's also great. Um, but he the, like at the end of the wedding scene where Caruso is making out with the guy's wife and then it's like it's a fucking joke. Snipes appears in frame and tries to join in the shenanigans with everybody mm-hmm. and they ignore and they ignore him and his wife pulls him away and he like keeps mumbling the joke that he was trying to make to them but to himself and his wife and nobody is laughing. Mm-hmm. It's this, it's like this incredible detail of background action and beautifully performed by Snipes that once again illustrates kind of his social place amongst this group of white cops. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a great moment. Um, anyway, so, uh, Jason, what would you say? And Chris, did you say that your favorite part was also the dance? It was also the dancing. I mean, how can you watch Christopher Walken on film dancing and say you, some other part of the movie was better? I I personally, I just can't see it. You know, like it's amazing. Uh, what would you say, Jason, is the most, uh, I mean, obviously this movie was shot mostly in 1989, was released in 1990, 
but that said, it's a in some ways still part of the 90s. Uh, it became a huge cultural artifact of the 90s. What would you say is the most 90s aspect of the movie? Um, maybe Steve Buscemi in the Run DMC gear. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting, his character, because he, he's in the first scene, he has a couple lines, he's in the next scene, and then he disappears. He's the rare character who isn't murdered, or, yeah. like, he just kind of... That's true. He's like fine, he's movies, fine. Like most movies, could have used more Buscemi. <laughs> That's true. It's copacetic, man. <laughs> I would go with um, hip-hop. I, I just don't think, you know, it was starting in the 80s, but, I mean, even the fact that, you know, Biggie used the name Frank White yep. as his moniker yeah. when he checked into hotels, and just the way that the movie uses School ED, I mean, the entire Am I Black Enough uh, dance party sequence is, uh, feel, doesn't, doesn't really feel to me out of that out of the 80s. It feels like it's, you know, Mm-hmm. predating some of the stuff that's going to come uh, in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, um, there's something about the the way, you know, the cinematic artistic violence of this film that is very 1990s and it spans like the whole world. I mean, a movie like Hard Boiled, it's kind of not out of place with King of New York, right? The mm-hmm. way like these Hong Kong action films, and I know that movement sort of started in the late 80s, went through the early mid 90s, but like it, it reminds me of those movies. I mean, on this rewatchables episode, Tarantino says he was making Reservoir Dogs and he saw King of New York and was like, oh, this is like, I can do this. Like I am a filmmaker. I can make a movie like this. I'm going to make a movie like this. And I mean, you can run through the litany of followers to all that stuff. And, and it's, I'm not going to say you never saw that in film before this, but it it definitely was so much of the decade to come was going to be this kind of beautifully shot gunplay between criminals, you know? What do you think, you know, it's been 30 years since this movie came out. Jason, what do you think this movie's grown out of? I mean, I think, frankly, if this movie is made today, a lot of the sort of exploitation elements that we've talked about uh, are, 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 are jettisoned. Um, specifically, Agreed. I think, I think uh, the, 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 the point, the, the previous point about the, the, the way in which most of the female characters are introduced. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of that stuff kind of goes by the wayside. And, the, uh, you know, the, the sort of notion of like, of of the women in the film as being sort of accessories, I think is is probably absent. Yeah. Uh, side side note: One time I listened to the director's commentary on Driller Killer, mm-hmm. and um, it was clearly high while recording it. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a shot of two, or there's a scene of two women uh, fucking in a shower, and the commentary is just Abel going, "Oh, mama." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, why else? Make, uh, why else make movies if you can't? If that's your attitude and you have the power yeah. to make films, like he's making his dreams come true, and it's beautiful. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Jason, I, I would have to agree with you. What I wrote down for uh, what it grows out of is the sort of the way that it mixes both exploitation and right. kind of art house filmmaking, sure. because I, I think those things don't exist anymore with like the capital. Or the capital A, right? Like they very much categorize themselves and set themselves up. And rarely do you find something that operates in between. And even if it operates in between, it still establishes its exploitation moments or its art house moments with those capitalizations. I think of someone like Tarantino, who we just brought up, and post Jackie Brown to me 
you know, and it's one of the things that I loved about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much is that it did most of that movie didn't feel like that. But post Jackie Brown up until Hollywood, his movies to me feel like they are very much announcing exactly what kind of category. And they're very fun. And, and, you know, he's an, he's an incredibly talented filmmaker, but they're announcing exactly what category each scene falls into. I agree with that, but I do also think there's something to be said for the idea that as a result of this sort of moment in the early 90s, thanks to kind of films like this, the the, the sort of conventions of exploitation more firmly immersed themselves in the art film. Like you're right yeah. that, that previous to this, they, they were very separate things and their intermingling here was pretty revolutionary. But because of films like this, because I think much more of, of sort of Tarantino's work, just because of the ubiquity of it, like those separate, you know, poles were, they, they were not quite so separate anymore after this moment. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I guess I, I guess what I wish is like, you know, you watch something like Jackie Brown and you watch something like Pulp Fiction or even like, you know, the first three quarters of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mm-hmm. or like the first 90 percent of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> and it feels and I love, love, love Hollywood uh, right. a lot. Even I've even come around to loving the ending, but they feel so grounded in beautiful artistic comedic writing sure whereas kill bill bastards django feel very much uh like announcing that they are exploitation in 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 a lot of ways sure yeah uh chris for you what uh what do you think this movie has grown out of in 30 years yeah well i brought up some of it before but i I think you know i agree with what jason was saying about the treatment of gender it's like a little problematic and it did like really stick out for me when i saw it um and i I, boys what's the matter what's the matter boys you don't like any boobies look i'm not going on over here hey look i'm not (laughs) what kind of guy what kind of guys am i talking to here what is this Mm, it's gross to me i hate it oh (laughs) it's so weird Um, yeah, I don't like that. And then also, you know, what I was talking before about the the race stuff, I feel like it's very, it's racially aware in a very 1990 way where it's like, it wants to be like, okay, black people exist, which is revolutionary to say at the time. And, but it's like, but you know, black people are like this and white people are like this. And, you know, we're trying to all get along. And I, I, you know, and that's maybe not totally charitable to the film, but there's, it's like 75 or 70% of the way there to a a modern race interpretation. But it's, there's the parts that miss, like really feel like they miss, you know? Sure. I, yeah, I guess. Can we argue about this? For yeah, a second? argue with me, please. For Christ's uh, sakes, Ricky. As, 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 a, as a white man, I really want to argue with this take. <laughs> yeah. No way. This Actually, goes I think this movie's yeah. perfect on race. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna preface, I'm gonna preface this argument by saying probably gonna get cut. Yeah, sure. Uh, Let's see how we go. Let's see how we go. There's something more thrilling and interesting about a movie like this, or even about a movie like uh, Bad News Bears, for instance, which I think is a dated movie when it comes when it comes to to race that something about it feels more truthful and honest that if you were even to put it in the actors hands who are playing their these characters they would come up with this as well because it's not just about the black characters the irish characters have a very specific type of personality Mm -hmm. that they're presenting as cops i mean frank white alone may not have that it's not very clear exactly like what his ethnic ethnic makeup is right but there is something that feels 
honest about the dynamic between Wesley Snipes and Lawrence Fishburne and the the sort of yeah. animosity and between him and they, David Caruso, would, I feel like that feels yeah, very like how, real, right? Yeah, how they would taunt each other, and I think because it, a lot of it ends up being subtext versus like direct text. Even though you know, I mean, obviously it's direct text because they hurl racial insults at each other, but like there's no. <laughs> There's no conflict resolved between the two of them. There's no like moment where Lawrence Laurie, Lawrence Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne pulls Wesley Snipes aside and is like, "You're working for the man. I'm working to get paid over here, and this is the way that life works for my for 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 people. And you got to join anything like that. All that you get is that Lawrence Fishburne holds up money and says, "What's up, black?" and then throws money at him. Right. And he's taunting him. And something about that feels. I, I don't know. I think I think much more truthful and and honest than if it were to start explaining itself. Well, I'm not saying it should explain itself. What I'm saying is more that like I don't know, you know, and this is a bigger discussion than this movie, right? But it's like it, the way it treats rates is by I, in some ways, I would say, not 100%, but it's like positing some kind of essential differences between black people and white people. And it's like, you know, talking about how we can get along or not get along between and, and, and like uh, betwixt each other. But like, you know, I think a more modern film about race wouldn't say that like, oh, the black people are like this and the white people are like this. And like, this is the conflict between them. It would, it would try to have some a more nuanced idea that like, the rich people are like this and the poor people are like this and the establishment is like this and the rebels are like this and it would all be more mixed up, you know? Uh, Jason, do you have a, do you have a take on this or do you want, do you, do you, you want to leave? Are there? you wisely you wanna, staying you, you wanna, out wanna, of this? Is do you want to leave, not touch this rail? No, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be over here on the platform. You guys can play <laughs> around on the rails while you like. Let's be and over I've, here. I've, I've touched it a few times. I haven't gotten, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, in uh, in that regard, I mean, in in closing, uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, uh, nice. King of New York is uh, I and for 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 my money, one of the great gangster movies of all time, and one of the uh, ten best movies I think of the of the nineties for me at least. Um, and you know, Jason's podcast is called Fun City Cinema. His books are available uh, on uh, Amazon or you know bookstore dot com however you want to go about buying books jason would you like to say anything in closing about uh your work or about king of new york uh ranking in new york it's fun to watch uh listen to the podcast rate and review and all that the book will be out next fall hopefully there'll be some theaters where you, you can come see me and i'll i'll sign a copy for you um oh and i did also want to mention just because why not um i'll have a, a new edition of my richard Pryor book coming out uh, a little later this fall. I wrote a book a few years ago called Richard Pryor, American Id, which I'm really, really proud of. Uh, they were putting out an expanded edition because it would have been his 80th birthday this uh, this December. So uh, keep an eye out, pick that up. And follow me on Twitter, Jason-Bailey, all spelled out. Oh, yes. Follow Jason on Twitter. He is the king of the clapbacks. Oh, boy. <laughs> king of being a dick on social media, yeah. Hey, there's a lot of competition for that. So if you're the king, that's very good. <laughs> uh jason i'm I'm just curious if you had had the chance to show some movies in the theaters right now or when you do get the chance to show do you know uh off the top of your head like what a what a few of those movies are that we can maybe send some people out to to watch if they're listening oh goodness i mean you know there there were a handful sort of that that i 
I mean, obviously, like, you know, we'll show Taxi Driver because people will come and stuff like that. But there are a handful of really terrific ones that I sort of discovered uh, for the first time or sort of revisited that that I feel like people haven't seen or that that aren't sort of part of the lore of the New York movie that I'd like, you know, that I I will try to take the opportunity to shed some light on. Uh, We talked a bit on the last episode of the podcast about an amazing movie called Night of the Juggler, which came out in 1981, never been released on dvd or blu-ray you have to go to youtube to watch it like somebody like recorded it on action cinemax and put it on youtube but it's this terrific uh james brolin plays like an ex-cop whose daughter gets kidnapped by a guy who thinks she's the daughter of like a wealthy real estate developer it's beautifully steeped in the whole like you know sort of history of like the nap commission and 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 cuts to cop budgets in the 1970s whatever it's a great sort of breathless proto taken style action movie it's just terrific and like nobody's seen it nobody's heard of it i've talked about it this is now the third podcast i've talked about it on it's like become my mission to get people to watch night of the juggler um is that the is that the clip in the podcast that uh where they're talking about the the nap commission and how it's hamstrung them which which clip was that? that's the super cops which is oh uh, yes that's right the super Cops. That Gordon Parks made after Shafton is this weirdly like like ram rabid pro, uh, propaganda movie. It's very strange. Um, it's an interesting movie to see, but not one I'd necessarily like recommend. Um, but uh, Report to the Commissioner is another one that I would that we just didn't have time to talk about in the episode. But another really sort of complicated '70s New York cop movie. Um, and then, um, I'm, 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 I'm trying to think if there, there are other, oh, and then, you know, across 110th street, I always like take any oh, opportunity to tell people to watch across 110th street. Um, Jason, thank you so much for uh, joining us on 30 years later. Uh, in conclusion, King of New York is the greatest movie ever made. And, um, it, <laughs> it, it could have, it could have used, uh, more boobs. It sounds like. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Pile them on. Keep them coming. <laughs>